Welcome to the Making Sense of Life podcast. My name is Garth Oliver, and I'm your host as we continue our journey through the pages of Scripture, tracking the story that unfolds there. In today's episode, we're going to look at the restoration that will be accomplished through the ministry of the suffering servant, which is found in Isaiah 54. Now, as those of you who listen to the podcast every two weeks when it drops know, this episode took an extra week to produce. I found today's passage to be exceedingly rich, and there was really a lot that I needed to sort out, think through, and so I pray that I can faithfully communicate the depth that I find as we work through the passage. Now, given this delay, it's my current intention to drop the next episode on Wednesday, May 25th, two weeks from uh, the day that you're going to be listening to this one, when this one drops. Uh, As always, I'll be using the New American Standard translation, uh, the New American Standard 95, uh, unless I refer to something different in this episode, everything I'm going to be referring to is in the New American Standard 95. Now, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you're familiar with the review that I do at the beginning of each podcast that takes us somewhere around uh, the 14-minute mark. It's actually going a little longer than that, but if you'll come in at the 14-minute mark, if you want to fast forward, if the Um, review has become burdensome for you if you're familiar with it. Uh, If you want to come in at the 14-minute mark, you'll you'll come into the introduction at a place that you're ready to pick up the discussion. Uh, I do this for the benefit of those who maybe haven't been listening to the podcast from the very beginning so that they can kind of be oriented to where we are and what we're talking about in the story. And so if it's burdensome to you, meet me at the 14th minute. Uh, But for the rest of us, let's review the key developments in the story and how they move the story forward. And so we begin with Adam and Eve, who were created and commissioned to rule as God's representatives. They enjoyed a fully functional relationship with him, which included all the blessings that he provided to them as his representatives. However, in spite of these blessings, the serpent was able to stir up discontentment in them. He convinced the woman to pursue her own ideas of good and evil independent of God, which was not only an explicit rejection of God's rule, it was also a rejection of her unique role in this creation. This is where the man should have stepped in and led, and through that leadership, subdued the serpent and protected the woman. But he didn't do that. He relinquished leadership to her, following her, as she followed the serpent. And so the man failed in his first opportunity to rule and subdue as God's representative. And although man has never lived up to this created purpose, it remains God's express purpose for him. And whether or not man will ever fulfill this purpose, I think, remains the driving question of the story. Now, in this failure, he brought a curse upon the ground that he was supposed to care for and protect. He'd been formed from it, and now he's doomed to return to it. And instead of the bounty it had produced for him in the garden, it's now going to yield thorns and thistles. This is his new reality under the curse. But Yahweh wasn't content to leave him there, and he's been acting ever since to restore mankind to what he created him for. He wants man to enjoy the blessing that goes with living in alignment with him rather than having to live under this curse. And so he started this restoration in the garden. In Genesis 3.15, he promised the woman that one of her seed would ultimately rule and crush the head of the enemy. In the following verse, he says that the woman will desire this man and he must rule over her. Now, while this statement seemed unclear at the time, the development of this promise is one of the main thrusts that drives the story forward. And as the story moves forward, man is persistent in his commitment to live independent of God, pursuing life on his own terms right up through Noah's day. Noah was the rare exception. He was the lone seed of the woman, the one who had chosen to align himself with God in submission to him. 
This wholesale determination by everyone else to live life on their own terms produced an earth that was filled with violence. In response to this persistent defiance, Yahweh sends judgment, wiping out mankind in the flood, and only Noah and his seed are preserved in the ark. Upon their exit from the ark, Yahweh makes a covenant with them, which we know of as the covenant of the rainbow, in which Yahweh promises to never again destroy mankind with the flood. This is a major development in that it formalizes his determination to respond to man with mercy. He knows that the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and if he doesn't act in mercy, man's never going to survive. Now, in connection with the covenant of the rainbow, Yahweh recommissions Noah and his sons. And this commission echoes back to the original commission of Adam with some significant additions. He tells them to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, which is essentially identical to what he told Adam. But dominion over the animals is stated a bit differently. Yahweh says that he's given all the creatures into the hand of Noah and his sons, meaning that he's given Noah and his sons authority over the animals. So while it's stated differently, that part is essentially the same as well. But it's in connection to this dominion that one of those additions appears. See, not only is man to rule over the creatures, but every living thing is given to him for food, just as Yahweh had previously given him the green plants for food. The only restriction is that he's not to eat the blood of the animal, because that blood is tied to its life, and to eat its blood would be to eat its life, and that's not okay, that's forbidden. Now, this notion that the blood of animals is set apart or sacred leads to another new element that's even more significant. That is that any man or animal who spills the lifeblood of a man is to forfeit his own lifeblood at the hands of man. The stated reason for this is because man was created in the image of God. To kill a man is to kill the one who was created to represent God. But the placement of this in the development of the story reveals something else. See, I don't think Yahweh just randomly throws in the death penalty for murder. He establishes this law because of the situation that brought about the flood. The earth was filled with violence. In other words, murder was rampant. And so now with the fresh start after the flood, that act carries the death penalty. However, in spite of the fresh start, by the time we get to Babel, somewhere between 100 and 3 years later, man's again united in his defiance of God's commission and purpose for man. Yahweh responds to this defiance by confusing his languages and dividing him into nations, which he then gives over to the dominion of Satan and the demons who followed him in rebellion against Yahweh. The best that the people of these nations, that is, the best that the Gentiles can hope for, is a life lived under the curse. But that doesn't mean Yahweh is giving up on his determination to bring blessing to all these nations. He chooses a man named Abraham and offers him a promise in the form of a covenant. And that's the Abrahamic covenant, and there are three main elements to that. The first is that Abraham's seed, his descendants, are going to become a new nation, distinct from all the nations that were created at Babel. And this nation is going to exist in relationship with God, which is a restoration of the relationship that Yahweh originally created man for. Secondly, this nation is going to possess the land promised to Abraham by Yahweh, and thirdly, they're going to hold a special status as the promise holder of blessing. And in other words, it's going to be through Abraham's seed that God's going to bring the promised blessing that the Gentiles as a whole have universally rejected throughout the story. Now, this covenant's an extension of the promise made to the woman in the garden, and it provides the framework through which Yahweh's going to work out his purpose of restoring man to all that he created him to be, and through which he's going to enable man to enjoy the blessings that Yahweh offers him. As the story unfolds, Abraham's grandson, Jacob, uh, is renamed Israel, and he has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. 
Because of a famine, they go down to Egypt where they are enslaved and grow into a people that's at least two million strong. And then after 400 years, Yahweh raises up Moses, who brings them out of Egypt to Mount Sinai, where Yahweh enters into the Mosaic Covenant with them, establishing the relationship that was part of his covenant with Abraham. Yahweh is now living among his people, the nation of Israel, in a functional relationship. And it's important to understand how this covenant relates to the Abrahamic covenant. And the main point is that it's subordinate. The Mosaic Covenant is subordinate to the Abrahamic Covenant in that it comes after it, and it doesn't invalidate or replace it, but rather supplements it. And it's supplemental in that it provides the means through which Abraham's seed will enjoy the relationship promised in the Abrahamic Covenant. Under this Mosaic Covenant, Yahweh requires the people of Israel to be completely devoted to Him with all their hearts, spelling out in great detail what that devotion is going to look like. If they'll do this, he's going to bless them as a nation in the land he's promised them. Specifically, this means that they're going to be chief among all the nations, and they're going to experience abundant fertility, both in their crops and herds, and in their own offspring. And in this, that they're going to manifest to the other nations the glory of living under Yahweh's blessing. And it's here that we recognize another distinction between the Mosaic and Abrahamic covenants. The Mosaic covenant's conditional. Israel is going to experience either blessing or cursing, depending on whether they obey or not. By contrast, the Abrahamic covenant is conditional. Having established the covenant with Abraham, Yahweh will make Israel into a nation through whom he brings blessing to all the Gentile nations. Now, before they get into the land, Moses is replaced by Joshua, who actually leads them in to begin to take possession of the land. However, once they get there, they continue to live uh, to fail to live up to their covenant responsibilities in their relationship with Yahweh. Every man's doing what's right in his own eyes. In other words, they're still living under the deception of the serpent that started all the way back in the garden. And in the book of Judges, we're introduced to the solution, and that is that they're going to need a king, someone who, through his leadership, will turn their hearts toward Yahweh. Now, as we follow the story, Israel had come to a similar conclusion. That is, they wanted a king. The problem is the king they want is a king like all the other nations have. And so God gives them that first to show them the folly of their desire, gives them Saul. But Saul is independent and self-willed. In other words, he's doing what's right in his own eyes. And so Yahweh doesn't allow him to retain the throne, ultimately killing him and replacing him with David. David's the king that they need. He's a man after God's own heart who's able to turn Israel's heart back toward Yahweh so that they're no longer doing what's right in their own eyes. As a result of David's faithfulness in shepherding Israel, Yahweh makes a covenant with him, which is the Davidic covenant. And this is an extension of the Abrahamic covenant, and it provides important details about the seed of the woman who's going to come and rule. We summarize that under four points. First, Yahweh is going to make David's name great. Secondly, Yahweh will establish Israel in the land so that they dwell securely there. In other words, their nation is never going to be overthrown. And this ties in with the third element of the promise, which is that Yahweh will establish a dynasty in which David's seed will rule over this securely established kingdom. In other words, the house of David is going to be an eternal dynasty. And then fourthly, David's seed is going to build a house for Yahweh's name. Now, David is succeeded on the throne of Israel by Solomon, his immediate seed, who begins to fulfill elements of the Davidic covenant. However, after starting out strong, Solomon doesn't finish very well. Rather than loving God, Solomon loves women, and these women turn his heart away from Yahweh to worship the gods of the surrounding nations from which they came. 
So, in keeping with the terms of the Davidic covenant, Yahweh disciplines the house of David, and this results in a divided kingdom. The line of David continues to rule over Judah and Benjamin, and make up the southern kingdom known as the kingdom of Judah. The other ten tribes who rebelled against the house of David formed the northern kingdom, and from this point all the way up into the exile, this is what's known as the kingdom of Israel. Now, as we track the story through the divided kingdom... We find that all the kings of the northern kingdom were evil, leading Israel away from Yahweh, worshiping golden calves as the God who brought them out of Egypt. Their persistent refusal to worship Yahweh brought upon them the full force of the curses promised in Deuteronomy. Specifically, this means that Yahweh brought against them the Assyrian Empire, who crushed them, carried off most of the people into captivity, and scattered them among the other regions of the Assyrian Empire. This happened in 722 B.C. Now, unfortunately, the southern kingdom, Judah, chose a path that wasn't all that different from the northern kingdom. And in spite of reforms by kings like Hezekiah and Josiah, Judah's repeated spiritual adultery brought them under the curses of the covenant as well. They were crushed and led into exile by the Babylonians, who reduced Jerusalem to rubble in 586 B.C. But as we closed out the book of Kings, we were reminded that the curses of Deuteronomy weren't final, and Yahweh's promise to David still stands. One of his seed will reign over Israel, firmly established in the land promised to Abraham. The kingdom of this promised seed will be an eternal kingdom, which will never be conquered. Now we've turned our attention to the prophets who ministered throughout the period of the divided kingdom. We've looked at Jonah, Hosea, Joel, Amos, and Micah, and now we're working our way through Isaiah, who was ministering at roughly the same time as these other prophets. At its broadest level, this book is composed of two major prophetic sections separated by a historical narrative in which some of the revelations of the first section of prophecy are fulfilled. In the first prophetic section, we find that in spite of Yahweh's patient care and provision, the people of Israel and Judah are simply going through their motions in their relationship with Yahweh. Hearts are turned away, and they're pursuing life independent of Him and all that He offers them. And they've persisted in this independence throughout the divided kingdom, although Yahweh's discipline of them has become increasingly severe. Isaiah warns them that this persistence is short-sighted. The story's unfolding according to Yahweh's long-established plan. He's in control, and the schemes of men and nations ultimately don't matter because they don't take his plans into account, and his plans ultimately determine the course of the story and the destiny of all men. And those plans culminate in the day of Yahweh, when Christ is going to return, pour out God's judgment on all the nations of the earth who oppose him, and take his place as the king who will establish his kingdom on earth. This will be a kingdom of perfect justice, righteousness, and peace, where the weak and vulnerable will be protected and the wicked will be destroyed. As a result of Christ's reign, harmony is going to be restored among all living creatures, and the Gentile nations are going to be drawn to him that he might teach them his ways. Given all these coming developments, Yahweh's people should be looking to Yahweh, not these surrounding nations, for their provision and protection. Then, in the second unit of the book, which was the historical unit, the perspective shifted. The prophet, some of the prophecies made by Isaiah in the first section of the book are fulfilled in very concrete, literal ways. And these historical events provided compelling evidence of the reliability of all that was revealed through Isaiah in the first unit of the book including the many elements that still wait future fulfillment. So now we're into the second prophetic unit of the book. This opened all the way back in Isaiah 40 with a voice calling to prepare a highway for the coming of Yahweh. Isaiah is, in effect, urging the people of Jerusalem to act in anticipation of this coming of Yahweh, at which time His glory will be revealed. 
As Isaiah continues, he presents the incomparable nature of this God, Yahweh. There is no one else like him, no one else who is worthy of worship or fear, no other God, no man, no nation. Only Yahweh is able to reveal the things that are to come, and he's able to do this because he's the one who's going to bring them about. He's going to cause them to happen. And so those people of Israel who live in anticipation of his arrival are promised that they will gain new strength. They'll mount up with wings like eagles. They'll run and not get tired. They'll walk and not become weary. See, he's chosen them as his servant. And unlike the rest of the peoples of the earth, they don't need to fear. In due time, all who oppose them are going to be destroyed, but those who wait upon him will be renewed and strengthened. Now, of course, the reason he's making this argument is because his people haven't been waiting on him. They've not embraced their role as his servant. Instead, they've chosen to follow after these other nations, even to the point of worshiping the idols of these other nations. Idols which are nothing more than man-made objects. And so Yahweh lays out his argument as something of a court case. Yahweh, through Isaiah, presents as the plaintiff in this case. Yahweh's work in creation and his control of the events of history demonstrate his supreme and incomparable nature. And this evidence is not static. He continues to demonstrate his control of events by revealing what he's going to do before the events occur. The defendants in this case are the idolaters. He compels them to defend their worship of their idols with evidence. Through the prosecution of the case, these idols are shown to be mere objects crafted by men from firewood. Far from being able to deliver man from his troubles, these idols are, in fact, inanimate. In other words, they're completely dependent upon man for their placement and position. They can't even stand themselves up. The notion that they could deliver those devoted to them is ridiculous. The point of the case is to establish who is worthy of worship. In worshiping these idols, Yahweh's people are giving the worship and devotion due to the supreme and incomparable God, Yahweh, giving that devotion, that worship to these idols. And this, Yahweh's not going to allow to stand. So here's what he's going to do. In the near term, the people of Israel are going to be humiliated for their idolatry, which has rendered them both blind and deaf to all that is true and real. But in the long term, Yahweh is going to do something new. He's not going to abandon his people. He's going to redeem them and restore their sight and their hearing in order that they may return to him and come to believe and know him. And he's going to do this through another servant that he raises up. We learn about this servant through a series of four servant songs that are spread through chapters 42 through 53 of Isaiah. As we move through the description of him, we came to recognize this servant as the seed of David, the Messiah. He's going to establish justice as a king, not only in Israel, but in all the earth. And yet he's going to do this with gentleness and humility. He's also going to be a light to the nations. Through him, Yahweh will manifest his glory to the nations and receive the worship due exclusively to him. As he carries out his mission, he's going to face such intense opposition that it will look like he's failed. He'll be beaten, abused, and humiliated. As men observe this humiliation, they're going to assume that his suffering is deserved, that he is under Yahweh's judgment for his sin. So he's going to be abhorred and despised, but as it turns out, He's under God's judgment, suffering for sin, but not for his sin. He's suffering for the sins of Israel, indeed, for the sins of the whole world. He willingly presents himself as a guilt offering to atone and make restitution for sin, again, for the sin of Israel and for the sin of the whole world. And throughout this suffering, he sets his face like flint toward fulfilling the mission given him. He doesn't waver. He doesn't cry out or complain. 
Because of his humble obedience, he will indeed be exalted above the kings and princes of the earth. In other words, it will be because of all that he suffers that he's exalted as the king who will establish justice and righteousness on the earth. And so that's a summary of the suffering servant. And now, having presented a picture of the servant who is going to restore Jacob to Yahweh, we get another look at what that restoration will look like in Isaiah 54. He begins by returning to the image of Judah as the wife who is both barren and rejected by her husband. The passage looks forward to the future that is in store for her, the future that will result from the ministry of the suffering servant. And so we pick up in Isaiah 54, 1, which says, Shout for joy, O barren one, you have borne no child. Break forth into joyful shouting and cry aloud, you who have not travailed or, or labored, right? For the sons of the desolate one will be more numerous than the sons of the married woman, says Yahweh. So we're going to pause here and think about it about who are these two women? There's the barren, desolate woman and the married woman with sons. Who are they? Well, we get a little help from Paul here because he quotes this verse in Galatians 4.27. So I want to go there and read. I want to start back in Galatians 4.21 to get into the flow of what he's saying. And so he says in 4.21, Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. So, of course, as we pause here and think about this, the bondwoman is Hagar and the free woman is Sarah. So what do their sons represent? Verse 23. So the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. So to just explicitly state the implications here, Ishmael was the son of the bondwoman. He was born according to the flesh. Here's what that means. Ishmael was the product of Abraham and Sarah's, not Hagar's, Abraham and Sarah's attempt to get a son through their own efforts through their flesh. Isaac, on the other hand, was the son that Yahweh had promised Abraham many years earlier. He was born to Sarah after she and Abraham had waited all those years for Yahweh to fulfill his promise to them. And for all those years, it looked like Sarah was barren. It didn't look like their faith was going to pay off. But then Isaac was born through faith to Abraham and Sarah, who ultimately trusted Yahweh to fulfill his promise. So Ishmael represents human effort, and Isaac represents faith in the promise of Yahweh. So let's continue reading, verse 24. This is allegorically speaking, or in other words, an analogy, by speaking by way of analogy. For these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she's in slavery with her children. Right? And so these verses identify the mothers as two covenants. Hagar represents the covenant made at Mount Sinai, which we know would be the Mosaic covenant. And now remember, as we're reading this, we're reading Paul, not Isaiah, and Paul is writing much later in the story. So when he says that Hagar represents present Jerusalem, he's speaking from a first century perspective when Jerusalem's under the domination of Rome. And so his point is that Israel had been enslaved through the Mosaic covenant which depended on the flesh or on human effort. So let's take a minute and review what he means. As I've mentioned in the key developments of the story at the beginning of the podcast, the Mosaic Covenant is a conditional covenant. If Israel was faithful to their covenant obligations, they would be blessed. But if they failed to keep their covenantal responsibilities, they would bring curses upon themselves. And included among those curses was enslavement by other nations. Of course, as we've seen in tracking the story, Israel wasn't faithful. 
they didn't live up to their covenantal responsibilities. And so the northern kingdom was taken into captivity by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. Judah followed a similar path and was taken captivity by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. Then the Babylonians were conquered by the Medes and the Persians. And although Cyrus, a Persian king, allowed the Jewish refugees in Babylon to return to Jerusalem, this restored Israel was still under the domination of the Persian Empire. They weren't a new independent nation. And then the Persian Empire was conquered by the Greeks, so Israel fell under Greek domination. And now, in Paul's day, the Romans have conquered the Greeks, so Israel is now enslaved to the Romans, all because they failed to fulfill their obligations under the Mosaic Covenant. And so through the Mosaic Covenant, first century Jerusalem is enslaved to Rome. Now, as Paul continues, he mentions another Jerusalem distinct from the first century Jerusalem. He says, but the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. And so, of course, the Jerusalem above is the heavenly Jerusalem. And clearly, in the analogy, this Jerusalem represents Sarah, the mother of Isaac, who was born through faith in the promise of Yahweh. Now, there's a lot more we could say about these verses, but we'll save that for the making sense of life portion of the podcast. For now, let's keep reading. And as we do, we come to the thing that brought us to Galatians 4 to begin with. Paul's quote of the verse we are considering back in Isaiah 54. And so he says in Galatians 4.27, For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. And so Paul understands the women in this passage that we're reading in Isaiah as representative of two different approaches to acquiring life or blessing. And these two approaches are embodied in the two women through whom Abraham had a son, Sarah and Hagar. Hagar embodies the woman in Isaiah 54 who had borne children. She represents the reliance on human effort in pursuit of blessing in life. The barren woman of Isaiah 54 is embodied by Sarah. She ultimately found the blessing in life she so desperately desired through faith in the promises of Yahweh. But for a long time, during her period of barrenness, it looked like she wasn't going to have anything. So with that understanding, let's return to Isaiah 54 and begin reading in verse 1 again. As we do that, keep in mind that the one being addressed is the barren one, the one represented by Sarah, who ultimately receives what was promised through faith. And so he says, Shout for joy, O barren one, you who have borne no child. Break forth into joyful shouting and cry aloud, you who have not labored. For the sons of the desolate will be more numerous than the sons of the married woman, says Yahweh. So the barren one, that is the one who trusts in Yahweh's promises rather than in their own effort, is promised that in the end they'll be more fruitful than the one who seems to have found success through trusting in their own efforts. Now, let's consider this within the context of what we know about the people to whom Isaiah is delivering this message. The people of the northern kingdom have already gone into captivity under the Assyrians for their long-standing refusal to walk in the terms of their covenant with Yahweh, that is, in the terms of the Mosaic covenant. And so only Judah, the southern kingdom, is left, and they're Isaiah's audience. Throughout the book of Isaiah, the major indictment against them has been their collective refusal to trust in Yahweh, to provide for them and protect them from the aggression of the other nations. As a whole, they remained independent and self-willed, stubbornly pursuing their own schemes. However, in spite of this collective self-reliance, there's always been a small segment of the population, people within Judah, who have not followed the majority, but they've trusted Yahweh for their security and provision. 
and they're the faithful remnant. So as we consider the first verse of Isaiah 54 in light of this reality, we see that both women are represented in Judah. The collective response of the nation, that of the majority, embodies the Ahager approach. Rather than trust in Yahweh, they pursue life relying solely on their own efforts. They are independent and self-willed. But the remnant, the small minority who wait on Yahweh, embody Sarah. And although they trust in his promises, they currently appear barren. Their faith has not yet produced the life and blessing that they hope for. So this first verse is addressed to this remnant. It looks forward to a time when their faith will produce abundant offspring, abundant fruit, abundant seed. And this abundance of fruit is the subject of the next two verses. Verse 2, enlarge the place of your tent, stretch out the curtains of your dwellings, spare not, lengthen your cords and strengthen your pegs, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your descendants will possess nations and will resettle the desolate cities. So obviously the expansion of the tent depicts an explosion of descendants of seed. The one who trusts in the promises of Yahweh will in due time, be so fruitful that they should spare no expense in making room for all the descendants that they're going to have. And these descendants are going to accomplish a couple of things. They're going to possess nations, and they're going to resettle desolate cities. And let's start with the last one. The cities are desolate because of Yahweh's judgment on Israel for their stubborn independence. And so the resettling of the cities is an expression of the return of Yahweh's blessing after the judgment has ended. And so these multiple descendants, these multiplied descendants, are going to resettle these desolate cities. But there's going to be so many of them, secondly, that they're going to be more than enough to fill the land, and they're going to take possession of other nations as well. And of course, this repeats a promise that extends back to the blessings that were given in Deuteronomy. Now, this reference to the desolate cities sets us up for the next section of the chapter where he turns his attention to the judgment and the accompanying shame that Judah is going to experience. He says in 54.4, Fear not, for you will not be put to shame, and do not feel humiliated, for you will not be disgraced, but you will forget the shame of your youth, and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. So let me pause here to offer a word of clarification. We use the word widow for a woman whose husband has died, but that meaning doesn't fit the context here. As the following verse is going to make clear, Judah's husband is Yahweh, and clearly he hasn't died. She's lost him as her husband, but it's not through death. It's because he's rejected her for her unfaithfulness. And so we read widowhood here with the understanding that it's describing Judah as a woman who has lost her husband because he's rejected her. This is the cause of her shame and her reproach. But in these verses, he explains that this condition is temporary and that she can look forward to a time when she will not remember the shame. So continuing, he says, verse 5, For your husband is your maker, whose name is Yahweh of hosts, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called God of all the earth. For Yahweh has called you like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she's rejected, says God. For a brief moment I forsook you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In an outburst of anger I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting loving kindness I'll have compassion on you, says Yahweh your Redeemer. Now, as we read this, we need to be careful that we don't hear Yahweh saying that he lost his temper for a moment, but now he's recovered. He was angry with Israel with an anger that was more than justified, but that anger did not negate his loving kindness and compassion, which are everlasting. 
His anger was brief. His loving kindness is everlasting. So he explains as he continues in verse 9, For this is like the days of Noah to me, when I swore that the waters of Noah would not flood the earth again. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, nor will I rebuke you. So we don't want to miss this point. Yahweh likens his judgment of Judah to his judgment of mankind in the flood. We covered this all the way back in episode 9. When Noah exited the ark after the flood, he built an offer and offered a sacrifice to Yahweh. Then Genesis 8.21 says, Yahweh smelled the soothing aroma, and Yahweh said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. Notice that after his judgment, Yahweh determined within himself, he's speaking to himself, that he would never judge the world in a flood again. This determination was not based on the assumption that man had learned his lesson. It's an expression of his mercy, which was formalized in his promise to Noah in the Noahic covenant. He knows that the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and if he doesn't act in mercy, man's never going to survive. And so now, here in Isaiah 54, Yahweh makes a similar promise to Judah. In the same way that he has committed himself to never destroy the world by flood again, he's also committed to never judge Judah again. He continues, verse 10, For the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you, and my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says Yahweh, who has compassion on you. See, Yahweh is determined to have compassion on his people. The mountains and hills may undergo cataclysmic change, but Yahweh's loving kindness and his promise of peace will not be shaken. The rock-solid future that awaits Judah, based on these promises, stands in stark contrast to their current situation. And the next section of the chapter highlights that contrast. Isaiah 54, 11. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted. Behold, I will set your stones in antimony, and your foundations I will lay in sapphires. Moreover, I will make your battlements of rubies and your gates of crystal, your entire wall of precious stones. So Yahweh is going to replace the upheaval of Judah's current situation with the stability and security represented by a fortified city. And not only will these fortifications provide security, but their construction is going to manifest in abundance and excellence and beauty. They're going to be sapphires and rubies, crystals, and other precious stones. And so listen as he continues to describe this future condition. And as you do, keep in mind that he's not giving Judah a bullet list of random characteristics. He's presenting them with a cohesive description of this future condition. He says in verse 13, All your sons will be taught of Yahweh, and the well-being of your sons will be great. In righteousness you will be established. You will be far from oppression, for you will not fear, and from terror, for it will not come near you. If anyone fiercely assails you, it will not be from me. Whoever assails you will fall because of you. So, a few comments to make here. In the first sentence we read in this section, which says, All your sons will be taught of Yahweh. The Hebrew word for taught is lamul. And it shows up two other times in Isaiah, and in both of those cases, it's translated disciple. One who is taught is a disciple. And so in this future condition, what he's saying here is that all of the people of Judah will be disciples of Yahweh. There won't be anybody who's not a disciple. And the next sentence flows out of that. Because they are following Yahweh, their well-being will be great. They will be prospering. 
And then the next line expands on that thought. He says, in righteousness you will be established. See, unlike their present condition in which they are unrighteous, in this future condition, when Yahweh reestablished them, he will establish them in righteousness. Instead of being independent and self-willed like they currently are, they're going to be disciples of Yahweh. They'll rely on him and they'll represent him. And so they will be established in righteousness. And this leads to the rest of 14, 14. Neither terror nor oppression will threaten them. Verse 15. Anyone who attacks them will not be sent by Yahweh, and as a result, the people of Judah will be able to defeat them. And he wraps up this picture of their future condition with the following assurance. This is verse 16. Behold, I myself have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and brings out weapons for its work. And I've created the destroyer to ruin. No weapon that is formed against you will prosper, and every tongue that accuses you in judgment you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of Yahweh, and their vindication is from me, declares Yahweh. Now, I want to pause here and just say, I hear this verse quoted from time to time as applying to us in the present day. And I guess if you're taking this in some kind of a extended spiritual sense in terms of ultimate victory, it's true. Uh, but what's being described here is their condition in the land, and they're going to be invincible. Yahweh is their security and their vindication, and that is their heritage. Right, And so that's what the promise is, is that in that day, they will be invincible. Now, this brings us to the end of chapter 54, and I had intended to cover chapter 55 as well, but uh, as I've worked through this, the uh, chapter 55, the focus is going to return to the situation in Isaiah's day uh, and the implications of this message for the people of Judah. And what we've talked about here is pretty heavy, meaty, um, and so to try to keep two of those thoughts uh, up in the air at the same time, I feel like is more than we can manage well. So we're going to end the podcast here, and we'll look at that other aspect of the discussion in the next episode, and we're going to go ahead and move into the Making Sense of Life segment of the podcast. And as we do that, I want to just recognize that as we consider the scope of the material that we've looked at today, much of the content in and of itself is not new. Most notably, the wife who will be restored after having been rejected is a topic we've already encountered, uh, most explicitly in Hosea, which we looked at back in episodes 73 and 74. So this wife who was rejected and restored, that's not new, nor is the secure future that awaits Israel. This is a common theme that goes all the way back to the promises of the Mosaic Covenant in Deuteronomy 28 through 30. And it's a major emphasis of Yahweh's covenant with David, which we discussed back in episode 41. And then we've seen it a number of times as we've moved through Isaiah. So those are not in and of themselves new. But what I do think is new is how this is going to be accomplished. And most significantly, it's not going to be accomplished through the Mosaic covenant. And perhaps the best way to think about this is to go back to Paul's use of verse 1 in Galatians 4.25. To set the context, the Galatians have placed their faith in Christ but then some teacher or teachers have come along and convinced them that they still need to keep the law in order to be acceptable to God. And Paul's writing to correct this false teaching. So we'll pick up his argument in Galatians 4.21, where he says, Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son of the, by the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking, or like we said earlier, by way of analogy. For these women are two covenants, 
one proceeding from Mount Sinai bearing children who were to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. And so these verses identify the mother of these two sons as two covenants. Hagar represents the covenant made at Mount Sinai, which is the Mosaic covenant. Now, remember, Paul's writing much later in the story. So when he says that Hagar represents present Jerusalem, he's talking from the perspective of the first century, when Jerusalem is under the domination of Rome. And his point that Israel has been enslaved through the Mosaic covenant, which depended on the flesh, on human effort. And of course, as we recall the terms of the Mosaic covenant, we remember that it was conditional. Obedience to the stipulations of the covenant brought Yahweh's blessing. Disobedience brought his curses. And these curses included enslavement by other nations, nations that included Babylon, Persia, Greece, and finally Rome. So Jerusalem in Paul's day was enslaved because of Israel's persistent failure to fulfill their obligations under the Mosaic Covenant. Because of their failure, the Mosaic Covenant had resulted in Judah's enslavement, Jerusalem's enslavement. Now, in contrast to first century Jerusalem, which was enslaved, Paul mentions another Jerusalem, he says in verse 26, but the Jerusalem above is free, she is our mother. And of course, the Jerusalem above is the heavenly Jerusalem. And clearly in the analogy, she represents Sarah, the mother of Isaac, who was born through faith in the promise of Yahweh. Remember, Yahweh's covenant with Abraham was unconditional. It didn't depend on the effort of man, but on the promise of Yahweh. And Paul says, she, this Jerusalem, is our mother. In other words, Paul doesn't consider himself a son through the law, but through the promise, and he says that about the Galatians as well. And it's at this point that he quotes Isaiah 4.1 uh, to support his statement. Verse, this is Galatians 4.27, quoting Isaiah 54.1. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear, and break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than the one who has a husband. As we said earlier, Paul understands the women in this passage as representing two different approaches to acquiring life or blessing. These two approaches were embodied in the two women through whom Abraham had sons, Sarah and Hagar. Hagar embodies the woman in Isaiah 54 who had born children. She uh, represents the reliance on human effort in pursuit of blessing in life. Now, in Isaiah's day, that human effort manifested itself in Judah's independence from Yahweh in seeking to secure life on their own terms. But when we get to the New Testament, we learn that even attempting to keep the law involved dependence on human effort, on the flesh. And that was its weakness. It requires perfection, and our flesh is incapable of that. Paul makes this explicit both in Galatians and in many other passages in the New Testament. Perhaps the most clear statement is in Romans 8, Romans 8, 3, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And this is the ultimate point of Isaiah 54.1. The seed more numerous than the sands of the seashore and more numerous than the stars of heaven that have been promised to Abraham and his descendants since Genesis. Those seed, those numerous seed... They're not going to come through the Mosaic Covenant, which Hagar embodies, but through the promise of the Abrahamic Covenant, which Sarah embodies. 
And the key to this plan was the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, the chapter that precedes the one we're looking at today. And so, uh, unfortunately, we've had to divide this up, but chapter 53 flows into chapter 54. The work of the suffering servant in 53 produces the results, the new situation that we find in 54. And so it was because he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, that we are healed. Listen again to 53, 10, and 11. But Yahweh was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of Yahweh will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities." Okay, so did you hear that? The offspring that are promised are going to come through the sacrifice of the suffering servant. He will justify the many bearing their iniquities. Thus, through him, the promise is going to be fulfilled through faith, not the law. It's not going to be fulfilled through the law, which relies on human effort. And this is exactly the point that Paul makes in the very next verse back in Galatians 4. And so again, in the context, we've got the two women who are going to be quoted in Isaiah 54. You've got Hagar, who represents the Mosaic promise, the Jerusalem of Paul's day. Uh, And then you've got Sarah, who represents the the promise by faith, uh, the Jerusalem above. And Paul says she is our mother. In other words, we're born of the promise through faith, not of the law that Hagar represents, right? And so then he quotes Isaiah 54, 1, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear, break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, for more numerous are the children of the desolate, than of the one who has a husband. And then he says in verse 28, and you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. And so the the Galatians are the ones who were born through the promise, not through the law. And he's going to go on to argue that because of that, they shouldn't leave any room for people to come in and try to put them under the law. They were set free free for freedom, and so they should live in that freedom. And with that freedom, serve one another in love, continuing to trust in the guidance of the Spirit. And so the the Galatians were children of promise, just like Isaac. That was true for them, and it's true for us. We're part of the numerous offspring promised through the woman who was barren and desolate, the woman embodied by Sarah. We are the suffering servant's offspring through faith, which means that the law has no claim on us. The requirements of the law have been fulfilled in us through faith in the sacrifice of the Son. Now, there's a lot here. I hope that you can uh, follow it and reorient to it to to understand the implications of it. Uh, That's my prayer. I continue to be grateful to be able to study this, share what I'm learning uh, with those of you that listen, and uh, grateful that you entrust this time to me. And so... Uh, just continue to pray God's blessings upon you as we journey through this and pray that you would know the fullness of the life that he offers. A couple of notes here at the end. If you've got any comments or questions, garth at truequest.us is the dedicated email. I appreciate those of you that have rated the podcast, and I think that increases the visibility. The, the, the numbers of the listeners, downloads continues to grow. So I appreciate that. And then just to mention that this podcast is a ministry of TrueQuest Outfitter Ministries. And if you're finding value in what we're doing here and you want to support this, you want to be a part of this, you can do so at TrueQuest.us. There's a donate button on every page. So until next time, uh, continue to pray God's blessings upon you. (music) 